The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This morning, I'd like to continue the reflections about the second noble truth, craving, as the kind of the, the basis for our suffering. Different ways to understand the second noble truth. The four noble truths in general, let me, let me just recap that briefly. The four noble truths are... Um, one of the foundational teachings of Buddhism that kind of describe and express what the Buddha seemed to understand as kind of the problem of human existence. What is, what, is, what ails us? And um, he expressed it in a way um, as a, almost in, in Indian um, Medicine, it's expressed kind of in that form of, you know, the first piece, the first noble truth is what ails us. Suffering is what ails us in terms of, you know, so this is kind of the diagnosis. What's, what's, what's the challenge? What's the difficulty? And uh, the Buddha termed that dukkha, which is um, not, it's, it's got a pretty specific definition, actually. It's not everything that we don't like. But it's basically um, pointing to the way our minds contribute to our suffering. The way, the way our minds, so the dukkha that the, the Buddha pointed to is created within our minds in response to what's happening in the world in response to what's happening in our bodies and minds. And so in the guided meditation, I pointed to noticing this relationship to what's happening. And this is a pointing to where dukkha is found, where this suffering, this struggle, this dissatisfaction, unease, other terms that could be used in the realm of what is meant by dukkha. Often the word dukkha, the Pali word that is usually translated, it's usually translated as suffering. Um, But that's a, in English, that's a pretty um, powerful word for us. And I've known people who have been, um, you know, living their lives and they come to meditation and, and say, well, I don't experience suffering. But any form of, of mental dissatisfaction with what's going on, irritation, anger, frustration, confusion, um, neediness, um, all kinds of uh, boredom, arrogance, pride, um, um, confusion, all kinds of, of relationships to experience. We might think that they are inherent in the experience, but that's what the Buddha points to here, actually, is that they are not inherent in the experience. And there's some measure that we have of, cha- of exploring what conditions might support a different relationship to experience. And so the, 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 the dukkha of the first noble truth is relating to 
what's possible to, um, to shift in terms of the conditions of our mind, that relationship to experience. And so that's, that's the first noble truth, that there is this dukkha. And the second noble truth is um, the connection, I'll just say right now, the connection between craving and suffering. Craving and dissatisfaction. Craving and unease. So the Buddha points to any time there's, there's that experience, I- that inner experience of suffering, there's some kind of craving happening. There's different ways that this is expressed in the Second Noble Truth. Sometimes um, the language, the Pali language, is translated as craving is the cause of suffering. And so that's, that's one way to explore it. When craving arises, suffering follows. Um, another way to phrase it is saving, uh, craving is the origin of suffering, which has some similarities to, uh, to causing suffering. And another one which actually is more in line with the, what the Pali word is, um, in the in the second noble truth is craving and suffering co-arise they arise together arise suffering arises with craving and so this is this is the topic for today so we'll go into this in a little bit more in in just a moment uh, continuing an exploration of this topic of craving and uh, the third noble truth is the possibility for um, happiness, basically. Freedom from suffering. And the, the terming of this one is like this, um, the ending of suffering is possible, but the, 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 the elaboration on it is with the ending of craving is the ending of suffering. So this is, again, pointing to the centrality of craving in our minds as being kind of the 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 piece that we really need to explore and understand how craving works what's happening there and then the fourth noble truth is that there's a, a way to cultivate conditions that will help us to release this craving and find freedom from suffering and this is the eightfold path wise view wise intention wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. These are, the, these are conditions that, and, and actually even hearing, hearing the Dharma is condition, is a condition. And it said, it said um, in one place in the, in the texts that the Buddha said that when we suffer, when there is dukkha, it leads either to bewilderment, confusion, or to searching for a way out of that suffering. And that search out of, the, uh, search out of suffering could be also tied up with confusion. And so the, the Eightfold Path really points to what needs to be understood in, in order to, the beginning especially, the wise understanding, wise view, points us to what needs to be understood in order for that suffering to be not a condition for more suffering, but a condition for freedom. 
There's one teaching that points to uh, the path to freedom, the path to the ending of suffering begins with understanding suffering. We don't, we don't have a release from suffering by somehow magically separating from suffering and, and just you know, floating above it. We, we, we meet the suffering and this is where the Eightfold Path supports us to, to connect using mindfulness, using wisdom to connect with our suffering so that we understand it. We don't typically seek to understand suffering from this perspective of what is this experience of suffering? What's, what's common about it? What's the humanity of suffering when we are suffering? Typically we, we are exploring it in terms of how do I get what I want? How do I get rid of what I don't want? How do I get rid of this confusion? How do I become the person I want to be? How do I make other people believe I'm the person I want to be? And so we, um, we typically don't just, we aren't just simply curious about this suffering. But this, um, uh, the meeting of suffering kind of has to begin with hearing something. And this is a condition. Hearing, hearing something about suffering, hearing something about craving is the cause of suffering. And also, I think, this, these Four Noble Truths point not, to, point not only to how suffering is created, but also that there's a possibility of doing something about it. So the First Noble Truth really expresses the, what ails us, the, the diagnosis. Suffering is the diagnosis, the... The, the second noble truth is really kind of what's the, the root of that issue? So what, what needs to be addressed is the second noble truth. The third noble truth is, is there a cure? Is it possible to, to, to cure this? And the fourth noble truth is kind of the prescription. And so the... the um, Hearing the teachings is a piece of the prescription, actually. But the prescription points to not just listening, but engaging. So the, the work, hearing, hearing the possibility for freedom, hearing the possibility for release from suffering, and that there is something that can be done these two things may inspire us to engage. And so the condition for hearing this is, is one of the conditions that supports suffering leading to the ending of suffering. It's one of the first things. It's, it's that, that uh, suffering to lead to the confidence that it's possible to end suffering. We have to hear some information. We have to meet something that tells us, yes, it is possible. Maybe meet someone that we see has, has had some effect from this practice. And so this is, the, this is kind of the overview of the, the Four Noble Truths. And today I'd like to explore a little bit more depth the teaching around craving the Second Noble Truth. The literal word in Pali for craving is tanha. The the Pali for that is for craving is tanha, but the the literal translation of that word is thirst, and so it's it's it points to the um, the kind of almost what feels almost like a biological neediness 
around craving. Now, thirst is something that we need to, to satisfy in order to live. And the, the, at one point, the Buddha, in exploring his, his, um, his mind and his, his, the teachings that his teachers offered him, he explored the possibility of really depriving his body of basic human needs, like food, and experienced a lot of pain and suffering and at some point recognized this is not the way you know this is not going to lead to the ending of suffering I need to take some food I need to to nourish the body here so that the mind can meet experience and so literally thirst needs to be satisfied in order for the body to continue living, in order to engage with these teachings, in order to engage with the practice. But it points to the way in which our um, relationship to things in the world often becomes one that we feel like there's no option other than to satisfy that craving. It feels as, as... that that the the craving has kind of convinced our mind that it's as important as having something to drink, to have this pleasant thing or to get rid of this unpleasant thing. So our mind mind kind of embedded in the view that comes with craving, this, this sense that I really need this, this is not an option, that that's the neediness of, of craving. And when we feel into it, I talked about this some last week. When we feel into that experience of craving, we see that neediness. We see that that experience is already suffering. That's my experience anyway, that that, that framing of this second noble truth as with the arising of craving is the arising of suffering. That to me feels true. When I notice the craving... There is already suffering. It's not that craving causes suffering, that somehow craving isn't suffering itself, but leads to suffering. With craving arising, there is already a feeling of something's off, something's wrong. But often we don't notice that. Often we are so focused on what's happening out there that we don't notice that we are suffering in here. We know that, that some, we, we want something or want to get rid of something out there, but we're not also aware of what's happening inside. And so this is, this is a pointing to turn also not only to what's happening in the world, but also to what's happening in here. And this, um, the experience of craving itself, we can already realize is not the movement towards well-being. We, it, it, it's trying to convince us that it's the movement to well-being because the, the craving is convincing us, when I get that thing or get rid of that thing, then I'll have well-being. And so the craving is kind of confused in some way that, that the getting the thing that I want or the getting rid of the thing that I don't want is, uh, is the ultimate kind of well-being. Well, that is a form of happiness in a way. It is, it is getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. There's some happiness there. And the Buddha actually acknowledged that. He said, yeah, that's happiness. There's a form of happiness that comes with getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. But he said, it's not the deepest kind of happiness. It is a very fleeting happiness, in fact. And so he points to 
something um, more profound and more, a happiness that's more profound and more reliable in a way, not relying on conditions, the changing conditions of the world for our minds to be um, peaceful, at ease. And peaceful and at ease does not mean that we simply look at the conditions of the world and say, oh, conditions of the world as they are, I'm at peace, no problem. That's not actually, in my experience, what this freedom from, from this um, neediness brings. Rather, instead, it opens the heart, that freedom, that freedom from that constriction around what I need, what I want, allows the heart to resonate more fully, more deeply with what's actually going on. It's not all looking in terms of the view of I, me, and mine, and looks much more broadly, much more globally. And that the heart that is um, not constricted with that views around craving, with the views around I, me, and mine, actually connects more deeply with the world connects and resonates very profoundly with suffering in the world, joy in the world. And the natural response to that is not apathy and indifference. The peaceful heart is not an apathetic, indifferent heart. It actually is motivated to respond with a different form of action Well, actually, the action might be the same, motivated either by craving or compassion, but the results are so different. The results are not only in our heart, but also often in the world when what's motivating us is not this constricted heart, but the movement of wanting to relieve suffering that comes from compassion. And so this this is such an important thing to recognize that that, uh, that when we are caught, and I, I keep repeating this, I think I repeat this almost every single talk, maybe not every single talk, but many, many of my talks, I repeat this point. Because it's so easy to hear when we are, when we are embedded in the beliefs around wanting and craving. You know, that, that those, those views around craving have so informed our lives that we've bought in to the view basically another kind of view in the in the wanting is not only the having what i want will make me happy but also this wanting this this needy wanting this craving is the only way anything happens and so that that points to a kind of a deeper uh, understanding around desire that there are forms of desire that are connected with compassion and love and joy and generosity, beautiful qualities of heart forms of desire that are connected with wholesomeness, that motivate action, 
We can, we can connect to the word aspiration, perhaps, this, this movement in a direction. And so this is, this is in the teachings of the Buddha. There's a term, chanda, which refers to, which often translated as desire. And in the, in the, in the suttas, in the teachings, the words of the Buddha, that term is understood to actually be a neutral kind of desire. It can both be connected with aversion and confusion and greed, and, and, and it can also be connected with compassion and kindness and love. And so it's, it's a pointing to this possibility for action outside of our habitual ways of believing that action happens. So that's, that's something just to, to recognize. It's very hard for us to, uh, to see how action would be motivated if I felt at peace, based on our beliefs and ideas about peace. But that's just, those are just our ideas and beliefs. The actual experience of a heart that's unconstricted is one that wants to engage. So to talk a little bit more in depth about craving itself, there are different ways that this is spoken about. And one, one way that, um, one teaching in the, in the Buddha's texts, in the Pali Canon, is that there are three kinds of craving. And so this, again, points to kind of the the Buddha had this really analytical mind that just kind of saw, oh, well, there's this kind of craving, but then there are these other kinds of craving too. And so he pointed to, first, the craving around sense pleasure, that there is often in in respect, with respect to pleasant and unpleasant experience, a desire to have the pleasant and get rid of the unpleasant. So this is, this is, or I should say, a craving to have the pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant. So this is the, the realm of craving around sense, uh, sense desire, sense pleasure. And this is referring to our five physical senses. The pleasure around our five physical senses is my understanding of what this, this is pointing to. Um, the other two kinds of craving... Um, are called the craving for existence and the craving for non-existence. There's not a lot in the suttas that actually describes what these are. Um, There's a little bit in the commentaries that talks about this. Um, There's some more modern interpretations of this. And so um, hopefully I'll have time to go go through the the craving around sense pleasure first. That's a big one for us. Um, And so just to, to explore that a little bit. Um, and then I ho- hope to have also time to uh, to explore these other two today. If not, I'll go into them next week. Um, but in any case, in the, with respect to those last two, I'll, I'll speak about ways that I found them to be useful explorations in my own practice. Whether or not it's actually what the Buddha taught, I don't know, but... It's, there's been some usefulness in terms of exploring those two in my own practice, so I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that. So the first uh, is that we tend to have craving. Again, this neediness, this kind of belief that it's not okay if this doesn't happen. Um, 
that my survival depends on this, essentially. That's, that's the kind of the craving quality. And, and it's kind of surprising sometimes when we actually look into our experience, the, the, the kind of the feeling around that, the, the view with craving, even around something simple, like, um, you know, wanting, wanting to have a sweet or something. It's like, you know, the, the, the desire there, the, the, the wanting, the, the craving there. When we look at the actual craving itself, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like our, I mean, we, like, rationally we realize our survival doesn't depend on having this sweet. But the feeling of that craving has that quality. It's like, need to be satisfied. <laughs> I need to be satisfied. And so that's an important piece to notice that that feeling of craving itself and the kind of the belief around it. Basically, that craving gives us the belief that I need this sense pleasure. I need this thing, this situation to be a certain way in order to be okay. In order to have ease. And this is, this is kind of reinforced in a way by, um, by the cycle that happens for us when we get something that we want. We, there's something pleasant out there. We get something. We, we want it. So, so there's the first part of it is there's something pleasant and we want it. And so we reach out to get it. We have it perhaps. And there's a moment when we have it, when we get it. The moment of the getting, that kind of cut this thing. That, that there is a moment of happiness there. You know, there, there's a kind of a feeling of, oh. Not only is the, there's a feeling of happiness that comes with being associated with something that we like. That's, that feels pretty good. Or getting rid of something that we don't like. That feels pretty good. It happens on both pleasant and unpleasant, this process. So we have this, this wanting either to get something or get rid of something. And the, the moment that we've done that, that moment when we've gotten it or gotten rid of it, that moment, there's a moment of happiness, partly because we've become, we, we've, we've become associated with, with what we want and, or we've become separated from what we don't want. So that feels good. But another piece of this whole process around why that moment feels good, and this is subtler, but it's actually the profound driving force behind this craving, is that when we get the thing that we want or get rid of the thing that we don't want, for a moment, the craving goes away. We have a moment when that craving lets go. And that also feels really good. Actually, I'll propose, just for your investigation, that the greater part of the good feeling when we get something that we want is not the actual having, but the release from that craving. So this, this was a bit of a surprise to me and certainly doesn't seem that intuitive. But in watching, exploring the wanting, 
not following through on certain, you can play with this, not following through on certain kinds of craving. You might notice, if you, if you explore the craving, as I, I did at one point, really looking at the craving around one particular thing, and then seeing when the conditions changed externally, as they will, that the craving disappeared without ever that craving being satisfied. So the craving was around wanting to look at somebody, wanting on retreat to, to, to look up and see who was around me instead of just looking at their feet. We were instructed to not look around so much, and so I was following the rules and really wanted to look at people. But I got curious about the wanting, and so decided to investigate the wanting itself and notice that the kind of off-kilterness around the feeling itself now, the kind of the pull, the, the push-pull feeling around the craving and the feeling like, you know, no, I'm not going to be okay unless I know who's here. You know, that, that was pretty strong in there. But as soon as the person kind of vanished into the next room and I couldn't see them anymore, that craving to know who they were went away. And there was a release from that craving without ever having satisfied it without ever having, and boy, that release from that craving, that felt like being released from a vice grip. And so that was really instructive to witness that, that that kind of that neediness was, the vast majority of the discomfort was the craving itself. Not the not having, but the craving itself. So we think We need to have the thing in order to be happy or get rid of the thing in order to be okay. But it's it's kind of a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding that I cannot be okay unless conditions in the world are the way that I want them to be. And this is actually really good news that we don't have to have conditions in the world be exactly the way we want them to be in order to have this ease of heart this kind of heart that's open and resonant with the world and responding to the world rather than reacting to the world, it's good news that we don't have to create the conditions to be exactly the way we want them to be because otherwise it would be hopeless. There's no way we're going to be able to make the world be exactly the way we want it to be. And yet, the possibility of ease of heart and responsiveness of heart is possible. So this first kind of craving for sense pleasure, the Buddha points us to actually investigate sense pleasure and our relationship to it, essentially. Um, Sense pleasure, he says, is is not inherently the problem. When he um, described this himself, he said, I I let go of the craving for sense pleasure. Sense pleasure, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience in the sense realm is just the nature of being alive as a human being. Some experiences will be pleasant, some will be unpleasant, some will be neutral. And so the pleasantness itself is not the issue. It's not a problem inherently, but it's our relationship to pleasant and unpleasant that is where this craving kind of comes in. It is often our relationship to pleasant and unpleasant is tied up with craving. 
And so the Buddha encourages us to explore what happens around sense pleasure. The first thing he points to is to notice the gratification with respect to with, with, with respect to sense pleasure and sense desire, getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want. So this is kind of pointing to what I was saying before, to be curious about what is the happiness? What is the gratification around sense pleasure? Some of it is the having. Some of the gratification is the having. And then he encourages us also to notice that. Okay, so how long does the gratification of the having last? We get something that we want. How long do we actually feel happy about having that thing that we want? The nature of experience is so transient that while sometimes we we do have certain experiences that, that last, that feel like we have the happiness of them for a little while, ultimately none of the happiness of sense pleasure lasts for that long. And we can be curious about this. And this, this is the, the Buddha's instruction around this. He says, notice the gratification with respect to sense, sense desire. And then see, how far does that gratification extend? How long does it last? How happy does it actually make you? And then that also points us in the same investigation to see to witness, as I did, around the wanting itself, the craving itself, something about the, the happiness that comes from the release from the wanting. And that's, that's actually a pointer to the third noble truth, that when that wanting releases, suffering also releases in that moment. So the, the exploration around the gratification with respect to sense danger how far does it, how long does it last the buddha the buddha has some beautiful analogies around around this he points to um um sense pleasure the being like a dream you know he he says imagine that you're in a dream and there's beautiful parks and wonderful things happening it's like yeah, there's some pleasure in that but then we wake up and we realize it was a dream so he's comparing the pleasure of sense, the, the happiness or the gratification of having what we want in the sense realm to being kind of like the pleasure of a dream. It's so ephemeral. Or he says it's like the happiness of having borrowed goods, that we, that we have something, but it's not ours. And... We, you know, we're happy having the thing, but then the owner comes along and says, oh, I need it back. And so, again, the, the impermanent, unreliable nature of having what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. And so this points to the second piece of this exploration, uh, what the Buddha calls the danger of sense desire. And the basic, the basic danger of sense desire is that... Um, you know, the wanting, the neediness around sense desire just reinforces the, the cycle that when we act out of that neediness, out of that craving, it basically reinforces, well, the last time I felt pretty good was when I got what I wanted or got rid of what I don't, didn't want. So as that gratification ends, 
as that gratification kind of fades, our mind thinks, oh, okay, well, hmm, that little bit of, of dissatisfaction around the fading of that happiness. And so when was the last time I was, I was feeling good? It was when I got what I wanted. So let me look for something to want. And so we end up, because we have been reinforcing that the best way to happiness is to get what we want, get rid of what we don't want, that's what we've been, what we've conditioned. As the, the Buddha points to, um, that which is frequently pondered becomes the inclination of the mind. And so if we frequently follow through, believe this view that this is the best way to happiness, then that's what we'll do. And it gets kind of hard to break out of that cycle. Uh, you know, one of the things I really um, see is, you know, the, the way our, um, our technology works, it's like it is refined to tie into this craving, to tie into the satisfaction we get when we when we get something, you know, like I, I sometimes sit down in front of the, you know, Google to look something up, and when I get that, you know, investigating this, you know, it's like I get that information. There's a little bit of like, oh, that feels good to have gotten that information, you know. Oh, I fit, you know, I found something, some information there, and then I can find myself like stuck in front of the the computer. It's like, what else do I want to search for? wanting to want in order to find something that I could relieve the feeling of wanting. Basically, that's what's going on. We could call it Google search mind. That's what craving kind of is like. And so the, the exploration around the, uh, the danger is this being caught by this belief and, and how hard it is. It's almost like we're addicts to that to that neediness, it's it's uh, it's it gets, it's pretty strong. There's other dangers the Buddha points to, kind of more, um, more, um, just ways that we engage in order to get what we want. And so, you know, the the. The, the movement to get what we want, essentially, I, I mentioned a little earlier that we haven't often been aware of the craving itself. We're more kind of believing that when I get that thing that I want, then, then I'll have that moment of happiness and that's when things will be okay. And it's like we are willing to put up with a lot to get there. And so the Buddha points to in order to, to get the things that we want, we're willing to put up with, you know, uncomfortable bodies as we, you know, toil and work in order to, um, to, uh, to earn the money, to get the things that we, that we want. And so there's a lot that we, that we put up with. Hunching over the computer or... And, and it's not to say that we, 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 we are not... Um, to engage in a livelihood. In the Eightfold Path, there is this engagement with livelihood, wise livelihood. And again, it, most of it has to do with the view or the perspective, the, the attitude with which we engage. Now, is, are we wanting to earn money in order to have these, you know, these, these things that we want, these cravings that we want to fulfill, the bigger car, the bigger house, the, the better status, is that, is that our motivation for our engagement with our livelihood? 
or is our motivation um, around wanting to support our families and our um, our communities to evolve in the direction of understanding and wisdom. And so also some other dangers around the, this process of the craving. It's like if we, if we get what we want, if we get the thing that we want, we may have some happiness in that moment, but something else that can arise with that is a little bit of fear. You know, kind of like I've got what I want, like the fear of the borrowed goods kind of thing. I've got what, we, what I want, but now I have to make sure I keep it. And so there's the anxiety and the fear that come with that. That's another danger of this cycle, of this pattern around the craving. If we don't get what we want, the suffering's pretty clear in the, in the moment. You know, that, that already the suffering happens because maybe we feel like a failure. We feel like, I, I don't know how to do things properly or, or, you know, the world is betraying me and why me? You know, so, so we have the suffering from that side as well because we are kind of caught in this view that the, the way towards happiness is to get what I want. So these are some of the, what the Buddha calls the dangers uh, around the, the cycle with respect to craving sense pleasure. And again, the sense pleasure itself is not a problem. It's that neediness around it. And then the third piece he points to is, is that there's a possible release or an escape from this sense desire. The letting go of the craving itself. That is the release. And that experience as I mentioned earlier, for myself, felt really felt like the visceral experience of that was being released from some really tight squeeze. That is kind of a pointer to the freedom, the possibility for a different kind of happiness, a different way of being in this world. So I want to take a little time to talk about the craving for existence and non-existence. And again, in the in the suttas, there's not a lot that is pointed to about what these actually mean. There may be a you know a little bit around. Um, and certainly, the commentaries point to both of these as being more metaphysical in in nature that. The craving for existence is about the craving for a pleasant rebirth in the future, to be reborn in a heavenly realm where everything is pleasant all the time. So that's, that's a kind of a craving for a future rebirth in a, in a, in a lovely situation. Uh, the craving for non-existence is pointed to as basically the craving that at the end of life there's nothing. You know, kind of this just cessation of anything um, so that's that's one of the ways it's pointing pointed to and in other places the the craving for existence is pointed to around the craving around pleasurable meditative experience and this this gets closer to what I think may be at least something useful to explore the the craving around mental experience. 
because the, the craving around sense desire is framed in terms of craving around our physical sense pleasures of seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. The, the sense pleasure, the physical senses, it's, it's pointed to there. And so perhaps these craving for existence and non-existence has to do more with craving for certain states of mind, craving in the realm of, of the mental experience. So craving for pleasure in meditation or craving for certain kinds of identities. This one makes sense to me, even based on the word that's used, craving for existence and craving for non-existence. The word in Pali for existence is bawa. And this word is also used kind of to mean um, identification, kind of the, 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 the senses of self that we have. This is, a, this is an understanding about this word existence. Is that it, and it feels that way as we begin to explore Uh, our own sense of self, our own kind of who I am, who I want to be. As we begin to explore this, it's like we have different existences. There are many senses of self. Our kind of idea about who we are and that we have this kind of continuity through memory, you know, our, we, we remember these different things. It's almost like this persistence of memory is, is what makes us believe that there's a continuity of self. But if we start looking at the experience of particular identifications, you know, what am I like when I'm a daughter versus what am I like when I'm a friend? It's like they're very different. You know, what, what, what is the, the set of stuff that goes on there? And so this is a, this is a pointing and, and actually... Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi also points to this around um, identification, craving for certain kinds of identities, craving for the absence of other identities. You know, so this, this kind of between these two, the craving for the existence of certain states of mind, certain ways of feeling, the craving for the non-existence of others. And so I, I want to give an example of this kind of exploration in my own practice because these two, in my experience, can be very connected. There's sometimes um, certain identities that, um, a certain craving for certain identity that's bound up with the craving for the not, not having another identity. So for me, there was this uh, this pattern or this kind of dynamic or dance between a craving, uh, a feeling like I'm a success, I'm good at what I do, that sense of, yes, I've got it figured out, I can make happen in the world what I want to happen, that sense of control, that sense of I'm successful. That, that was that was an identity. There's an identification there with that, and in my in my sense of it, that's how I was supposed to feel. You know, if I wasn't feeling that way, it was a problem. It meant I was failing, so I'm a failure. And so there's the other identity, the flip identity. I'm a failure. I'm no good. I can't do things. 
I'm unworthy. Hate myself for being unworthy. When I felt like I was success, I could feel like I was worthy. I could feel like I could do things. And so the, 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 the desire for the existence of that sense of self, of feeling like a success, and the desire for the non-existence of the self-hatred self, the failure self. So these two. And what I discovered in this exploration was that these two were completely tied up with each other. I thought, initially, I thought that what I need to do is get rid of this failure self because that's the problem and just land in this I can do this self. You know, this may be some of the way that some of the new age things around affirmations work. It's like, yeah, come into that, that sense of power, that sense of control. I am successful. I am good at this. You know, so, so that's this kind of reinforcing that sense of, of existence of a, of a sense of self that feels good. And yet, because of the nature of life, because of the nature of impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable experience in the world, inevitably, that sense of control, that sense of success is going to fade, is going to end. And what I discovered at some point was that the the belief that I had to have that success sense of self, that I'm good at this sense of self, was a setup for the I'm a failure. Because it was the very thinking I had to succeed that when I didn't succeed, as happens, that the, the mind flipped into this other identity. And so... You know, I was, I was getting pretty good at noticing that I'm a failure identity. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a lot of suffering in that I'm a failure identity. It felt pretty bad. I hate myself. I'm unworthy. I'm no good. All of those feelings. I got really kind of attuned to that. But at some point, I began to recognize I need to also notice that I'm a success identity. Because the I'm a failure identity doesn't exist without the I'm a success identity. They are completely connected. And, and actually there was a lot of shifting that happened as I began to notice that I'm a success identity. It was a little bit scary at first because that's like that was where I had, the, I had landed on. Well, that's where happiness is. You know, that, that was the craving. The craving that that's where I'll be happy. The craving around that had no conception that happiness could come without either identity, (laughs) that neither identity is really necessary. Things happen. Conditions happen that things unfold in a, a certain way. Sometimes they unfold in a way that is in line with my direction and my aspiration. Other times it doesn't unfold that way. I don't have to there's not, there's not, the, the, the craving and the identity around that is extra. It's optional. This is not easy to see, but just by exploring and not being, you know, not being self-judgmental around these identities, there was a lot more traction in my exploration of this when I just got curious about them. It's like, oh, here's the, here's the I'm a failure identity. Okay, let's get to know this one. And then, 
there was one time it was flipping pretty quickly between them. Kind of interesting. It's like I was having this view that I was not very mindful. Just like the mind was like just noticing the 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 wandering all over the place. And then I'd take a step and I would, oh yeah, I can be with that step. Oh, I'm a good meditator. And then the mind would, oh, I'm a bad meditator. Like just one flipping between the other. And so just noticing this. The noticing itself has a power to it to help us understand it. And there can be times when we really get caught in certain identities and we need to not simply observe because we may find that trying to observe for myself, trying to observe the, the ident- when I was really angry, a lot of sense of self around the anger early in my practice. And when I tried to observe that, I would often just get sucked into it. And so discovered pretty quickly that I needed to have some other strategies for dealing with that particular identification, to set it aside, to, um, to pay attention to something else for a little while. And so we, when we can be aware of these identities and be aware of the, the craving and know it, there is a transformation that happens. It may be slow. It may be a gradual transformation. And often it is a slow wearing away of that optional energy of craving. But there is a transformation around it because as we become curious about this, our minds begin to recognize that this is not the way to happiness as we we see the gratification, the danger, the escape around craving. We see that our usual habits and patterns around it are not that effective. We start to be willing to explore other things. And the path of mindfulness gives us many other options to explore. So time to stop. Sorry, I didn't have time for questions this morning. Thank you.